From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Cancer treatment has typically involved some combination of radiation, chemotherapy, and surgery. But in the last few decades, a new form of treatment, immunotherapy, has emerged and it's already showing positive results. Immunotherapy works by firing up your own immune system to attack and hopefully kill cancer cells. On today's program, we'll discuss immunotherapy and the latest research with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll hear about the latest findings on the benefits of activity, even something as simple as vacuuming. Well, there you go, Tracy. (laughs) And an expert from the CDC weighs in on the rise in sexually transmitted diseases. All that, plus the latest word on the flu outbreak, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Your immune system fights invaders such as germs throughout your body. Your immune system should also recognize cancer cells as abnormal, but it doesn't always do so. Cancer cells can develop an ability to hide from the immune system, or they can disable or inhibit the immune system from acting. Tricky cancer cells, aren't they? Very. The goal of immunotherapy for cancer is to induce your immune system to recognize and kill those cancer cells. In the last few decades, immunotherapy has become an important part of treating some types of cancer, and promising clinical trials are underway to test these new therapies. Here to discuss immunotherapy is Mayo Clinic immunologist Dr. Keith Knudsen. Welcome, Dr. Knudsen, to the program. It's nice to meet you. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Who decided that you should come up from Florida in uh, January? What's that all about? Well, I originally was uh, stationed here in in Rochester, and I still have family here. Ah. And so I come back every once in a while, even though it's cold. Sometimes in the winter. Yes. Gotcha. So... um, we have 170 stations all around the country, and so not everybody um, knows exactly what immunotherapy is. Can you please explain it for us? Well, it, the immune system is uh, quite complex, and and uh, but I think you can you know uh, really try to understand it in the sense of the vaccines that we use for the prevention of infectious diseases. So we all get a vaccine or multiple vaccines at some point in our life, depending on where you're from, different kinds of vaccines that would protect us from exposure. And the reason that we do that is because it takes a long time for the immune system to develop what it needs to specifically attack something. So, for example, it takes on the order of anywhere from three weeks to four weeks to develop an immune response against the flu. For a lot of these organisms, they can they can act much more rapidly in that Mm. cause illness. Mm -hmm. And when they do cause illness, that suppresses the immune system. So we need to act by giving vaccines. And that helps really recapitulate or more or less create that first infection. And once you had that first infection, then you're protected from subsequent infections. So we essentially give the first infection with a vaccine, which tends to be a much attenuated form of whatever virus. What does that mean? Smaller version? Attenuated in the sense that it's not as pathologic. It doesn't, it's not as disease causing. Okay. So, but it's enough to stimulate the immune system. And then once the immune system is stimulated, it can provide protection for months, years, decades. So, Dr. Knudsen, you you talked about the attenuated vaccines. Now, are these live vaccines or are they dead vaccines? Can you tell us the difference? There's a mix of both. And so we use 
many in, for many vaccines, we use attenuated forms of microorganisms. So mm-hmm. they are living and they do cause infection, but the infection doesn't cause the same kind of disease. In fact, it's often subclinical. We don't see it in the clinic, but it's enough of an infection or it resembles enough of what would cause a disease to stimulate the immune system. And there's also fragments or heat killed or killed in some other way microbes that can be used as as vaccines as well, and they stimulate the immune system. So that works when it comes to mumps or chicken pox or fill in the blank. But why is it that cancer tricks the immune system? How does cancer get around that? Well, so think about it like this. You have this very powerful system in your body that can kill microbes, prevent diseases, eradicate, you know, all kinds of different uh, microorganisms that are in the environment. You need to have ways of protecting yourself from that immune system. So your body has developed or evolved over time ways of protecting itself from its own immune system. So typically, you don't have problems with your immune system attacking you. Some people do. In type 1 diabetes, for example, which is insulin-dependent diabetes, or in autoimmune diseases uh, such as rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or something like that, that those mechanisms which prevent the immune system from attacking yourself are somehow subverted. Mm-hmm. So we have all of these genes in our body that allow us to, to block the immune system from attacking us. And the cancers are really good at finding those mm-hmm. and, and turning them on. So then what's the, the difference for, between vaccination and an immune therapy? Is immune therapy specifically guarded to treat cancers and vaccination is to prevent infection? So, right. So that's been the traditional sense that we give a vaccine to prevent the development sure. of a disease. So more recently, vaccines have now become useful in the therapeutic setting, so after one's gotten the disease. And it allows the body to recognize what we call antigens or parts of whatever the disease is. And we oftentimes use these vaccines in individuals along with something else that would help us block those suppressive mechanisms that I was telling you. Okay. Okay. So using vaccines in combination with something that kind of reverts, reverses this ability of tumor cells or infections to block the immune system is very useful in the therapeutic setting for reducing the severity of disease. So is immunotherapy the same thing as vaccine therapy? Like we've talked about using the measles vaccine against a tumor. Exactly. Is that the same thing? It's So vaccine therapy is a subset of therapies that belong in this more global category, immunotherapy. Okay. There's different types of immunotherapies. We've made tremendous progress over the last three decades at implementing many of these different kinds of immunotherapies, and some of them are vaccines, mm-hmm. and some of them are other ways of stimulating the immune system that are different than vaccines. Does chemotherapy stimulate the immune system? Chemotherapy can stimulate the immune system in some ways. It depends on the chemotherapy. So a lot of chemotherapies, as many people know, are very toxic. And the the reason that they're toxic is they kill growing cells. Cancers are composed of 
a ball of growing cells. And so a lot of chemotherapies rely on this growth in order to kill the, the cancer cells. Well, the, the um, immune system can recognize dying cells. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, in, with some chemotherapies, they have been useful in co- combination mm. with immunotherapies by helping stimulate the immune system. But the problem is that chemotherapies kill dividing cells. And guess what? The immune system has to divide too. So oftentimes when you use chemotherapy, it blocks the immune system at the same time that it blocks the tumor growth. And so you don't get the benefit all the time of an activated immune response against your tumor when you use chemotherapy. Is there a way to make a new form of chemotherapy that wouldn't do that? Or is then then it's not called chemotherapy anymore? That's right. I mean, there are now investigations trying to specifically target the chemotherapy only to the cancer cells and not to the immune mm-hmm. cells. And that's the way that we think we're, it's going to be useful in the future. So, for example, at Mayo, we are developing a range of various what we call nanoparticles, mm-hmm. which is a new technology that has emerged over the past uh, several years. And these nanoparticles can be targeted specifically the, to the tumor. And so you can load chemotherapy onto these nanoparticles. Mm. They can go to the tumor and specifically kill the tumor. So that will decrease the side effects? Um, and that would decrease the side effects. Okay. Because the side effects are typically due to the chemotherapy acting on some normal sure. function in the body that you don't want to be inhibited. So when you're thinking about the use of immunotherapy, what sort of patients are you you're targeting? We target all kinds of cancers with immunotherapy, and we target all clinical settings. And what I mean by that is there may be patients that have a tumor that's stubborn and won't go away. And so that would that would be a, what we call the therapeutic setting. We also use vaccines in the prevention setting too. So a good many patients have early stage disease, so stage one, stage two cancers. And we can go in and we can successfully remove the bulk of the tumor. But it's likely that in many of these cases, a tumor cell or two has gotten out and has been floating around in the body. And maybe it's going to sit there for a couple of years before it decides to grow again. So we can use vaccines, for example, and other immune-based therapies to prevent disease recurrence, too, by stimulating the immune system. And that's in much the same way that we would do for for an infectious disease vaccine, Mm -hmm. where we stimulate the immune system while the disease is not present. Okay. And then once it starts to come back, you have a ramped up immune system. And in fact, those are some of the studies that we're doing personally in, in my laboratory is uh, identifying vaccine approaches that can be given to patients after they're done with chemotherapy when they're healthy to stimulate their immune system. Because we know that having a, an appropriately functioning immune system that can target the tumor is helpful in preventing recurrence. Huh. Well, we're learning about immunotherapy from Mayo Clinic researcher and immunologist, Dr. Keith Knutson. Are you all up to speed here, Dr. Cathar? Sure. Okay, I'm going to try. I'm going to take a little break and see if I can keep up with you guys. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to learn about current vaccine clinical trials for breast cancer and discuss exciting new research that includes ovarian cancer as well. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking about immunotherapy with Mayo Clinic immunologist Dr. Keith Knutson. So the HPV vaccine, then, is that the sort of sim- as you've been discussing, to give that to prevent, because now in men and women, cervical cancer, is this the rationale behind this? There's multiple rationales. So there's a few cancers that are caused by viruses. Yeah. And HPV is one virus that is, as you, as you alluded to, causes uh, a, a number of different cancers, mostly related to cervical cancer, one of the leading causes of, of cervical cancer, but also cancers of the head and neck as well. So w- what we want to do with the HPV vaccine is to actually prevent the virus from coming in. So it, it behaves a little bit differently. Okay. We're not actually targeting the cancer cell per se. We're vaccinating to prevent the cause of the cancer. I see. So, so it's like putting up a roadblock. You know, you have the virus. Yes. And you have the tissue that that virus infects, which is the, the cervical tissue. Essentially what happens is when we use the vaccine, we generate what we call antibodies that circulate around the body. And what they're doing is they're looking for this virus, and they block that virus from going to the reproductive tissue or the head and neck in an individual. And so that's one way that we can prevent cancer. And we do that Mm -hmm. with the hepatitis B vaccine. Mm -hmm. We prevent liver cancer. We do that with the HPV vaccine. We prevent all kinds of cancers, cervical cancer, head and neck cancers. We don't have those types of vaccines for many of the other cancers that aren't caused by bacteria or viruses, breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer. We don't think that these are caused by viruses or bacteria. Those are probably caused by exposures. We need now to turn our attention to the research that you're doing and putting that research into action. Tell me about some of the projects that you're involved in. Right. So this is a very exciting time for immunology and immunotherapy in general. It's made such an impact. And I've been at Mayo now for about 10 years, and, and they have uh, led the way in many in many respects with uh, the development of, of immunotherapy. And one of the things that we've been studying is the development of vaccines to prevent breast and ovarian cancer. And there's a couple of ways to prevent them. We could prevent them at the primary level, so what I mean by that is before they occur. Mm-hmm. Or we can prevent them from coming back, because most breast cancers, the individuals, the, the patients that are being treated have identified their cancer early through mammograms or through you know regular screening strategies, and we can remove them. Oftentimes, however, we don't get all the tumor cells for whatever reason. They get out, they get into other parts of the body. So our goal is to identify what we can target on those cancer cells. What is the immune system going to see? Once we identify that, then we can play, you know, some games with molecules and cells and everything and try to make a vaccine and, and give that back to the patient. So we're working hard by identifying those targets and moving those into the clinic. Let's discuss the current breast cancer trials. We have uh, a number of clinical trials the past uh, 10 years or so. We've identified a target which we think is uh, appropriate for uh, developing a vaccine to prevent triple negative breast cancer. We've already conducted a phase one clinical trial uh, to determine that if if it's safe, and, and we found it to be safe and effective at stimulating the immune system. So we are now conducting a phase two clinical trial. Mm-hmm. The question we want to address in the in the phase two clinical trial, does it do what we think 
it should do. What, that, what do you mean by triple negative? Breast cancer, there's about 240,000 cases of breast cancer per year. About 20% of those have this unique molecular profile, so okay. to speak. Okay. And they are classified as what we call triple negative in that they don't express this molecule HER2 new, which is associated with another form of breast cancer, and the estrogen and progesterone receptors, which are associated with uh, estrogen positive breast mm-hmm. cancer, the, the leading uh, breast cancer. We've developed a vaccine that is going into phase two clinical trials. So the Mayo Clinic is arranging uh, women and men with triple negative breast cancer. It's mostly women, but men do get breast cancer as well to participate in the study. And about two thirds will get the vaccine. So it's a very well designed study in that most people get the vaccine. And then we're going to wait and see after well, five years. And we're going to look at, and we hope, of course, or else we wouldn't be doing sure. it, that it's going to prevent recurrence. Recurrence is the leading cause of death in triple negative breast mm-hmm. cancer. So if it recurs, mm. that it usually recurs away from the breast in, in some other tissue. And once that happens, that's called metastatic disease. And everybody knows that metastatic disease is fairly deadly, uniformly deadly. And so our clinical trial is in 290 patients. Two-thirds of those will receive the vaccine. The second clinical trial is in another fraction of breast cancer patients called HER2-new-positive breast cancer patients. And that's an early trial. And that's where we're going to start to ask the question of can we prevent disease? So individuals that have been diagnosed with a pre-malignant condition, DCIS or ductal carcinoma in situ, which isn't quite cancer yet, will be given a vaccine. We know that they have a certain rate of developing. And so we're in the early phases of testing a vaccine to prevent the development of HER2-new breast cancer if you've been diagnosed with a pre-malignant uh, precursor of breast cancer, so to speak. So that's in the safety testing phase right now, phase one. So what's on the horizon? So we have these vaccines. We have a wide variety of other modalities that are used to stimulate the immune system. What happens if we come in with vaccines plus these other modalities to really amp up the immune system? That's the question we're going to ask. So maybe some of these patients that have resistant disease, disease that's causing them a lot of problems, will have a chance by us maximizing the immune response against their cancers. It's exciting. Very. very. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Knudsen, for Thank joining you. us. We've been uh, talking about immunotherapy research and clinical trials with Dr. Keith Knudsen. He's an immunologist at Mayo Clinic. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear how the health benefits of light activity are even better than we thought. And later on in the program, we'll discuss the rise in STDs with an expert from the CDC. Coming up, breaking news on this year's flu season. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. This is Dr. Tom Shives with this week's news update. According to the CDC, the U.S. is experiencing the worst flu season in a decade. Here to update us is influenza expert and the director of the Mayo Vaccine Research Lab, Dr. Greg Poland. Dr. Poland, tell us what we don't want to hear. Well, Tom, you're exactly right. This is a bad flu year. I would add that it's no worse than any of the years in which this specific type of virus, the H3N2, is circulating. Uh, One of the things and myths for us to dispel is you hear things in the media like, well, it's only 30% effective, and people say, well, maybe I shouldn't bother to get it. That's the wrong decision. Many of our medical therapies are not 30% effective. What we're saying is that on average for a population of every three uh, people who get this vaccine, 
one of them is going to be prevented from being sick and in bed for a week or two. An even higher proportion are going to be prevented from getting pneumonia or being hospitalized or even dying from this vaccine. And there's an important point to make. About 10% of the viruses that are circulating now are type B viruses. So what we're going to see, this is my prediction, is as this influenza season moves on, we're going to start seeing different influenza viruses circulate, which are in the vaccine. That's a reason to get this current vaccine. You can get flu more than one time a year because we have different viruses circulating. So it's not too late to get the vaccine? Absolutely not. We're going to have bad influenza for probably another 12, 13 plus weeks. So as a healthcare provider, I would plead with people, get the vaccine as soon as possible. All right. And if you do get sick, um, what do you do? And, and who's a candidate for an antiviral medication? Yeah, you know, there's widespread influenza activity in every U.S. state, something we don't see very often. And I would say particularly people who start um, having high fevers are not getting better, are developing cough and coughing up, you know, they, that gunk, or have underlying medical problems, like they're being treated for heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, cancer, anything like that. That's the reason to go in and be seen. And this is the key within 48 hours of developing symptoms. That's when the antiviral drugs work best. All right, Dr. Greg Poland talking to us about an update on the influenza season and if you catch it early enough, an antiviral medication might be in order. Thanks, Dr. Poland. My pleasure. For Mayo Clinic News, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. If you needed one more push to get going on your fitness goals in the new year, two recent studies just might do the trick. Researchers at Harvard University and the Karolinska Institute in Sweden found that exercise is even healthier than previously believed. Yeah, even light activity like vacuuming or walking the dog was found to help reduce mortality. Here to discuss is Dr. Francisco Lopez Jimenez, who is Division Chair of Preventative Cardiology at the Mayo Clinic and also Research Director of the Dan Abraham Healthy Living Center. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Lopez Jimenez. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So let's talk about uh, exercise studies. First of all, you're asking people to exercise and then turn in their results. Is everybody honest? I'm sure I would be, and I know Dr. Kakar <laughs> would be for sure, but is everybody honest when you do this type of study? Well, the short answer is no. Uh, we tend to overestimate the amount of physical activity and exercise we perform. Uh, we tend to be more optimistic about what we do. Therefore, uh, the validity of the research that we have, uh, most of it regarding uh, exercise and health benefits, uh, relies on on surveys. And and there was this question about you know how. How uh, reliable is what we know about the exercise and the potential benefit? Because everything uh, comes pretty much from surveys. Uh, so that was before these studies and, and few others. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that the majority of the evidence comes from uh, surveys. So Dr. Lopez Jimenez, I know you weren't part of these studies, but can you explain to our listeners what, what they showed and, and the issues with them? Sure. Well, now, these uh, two studies were different than the traditional studies testing the same question about how good physical activity is for our bodies. Uh, we're different because they uh, measure physical activity with some little devices, um, 
actually more sophisticated than the devices that people use these days to measure uh, steps. Those devices uh, measure every single uh, movement uh, the body uh, will have, and, mm-hmm. and they can separate uh, intense activity, moderate activity, and light activity. And they can also identify those who are just not moving at all. Mm-hmm. And and that makes those studies very unique, very uh, powerful in terms of uh, scientific value. And, and what those studies show was that um, when people uh, perform light activities, they get a lot of benefit. It also confirms what we suspected for many years that um, intense or moderate to vigorous activity is actually very good and and perhaps actually better than light activity. And that's important to to, to confirm. But I think one of the most relevant findings of those studies uh, was that uh, it, it doesn't really take a lot of exercise to to get the benefit of it. And also that when people go from being completely sedentary to just moving a little bit through the day, that's actually the biggest uh, gain, the biggest uh, bang for the buck. Yeah, We're supposed to, the message that I've gotten anyway is that I'm supposed to be moving 150 minutes and I won't over-report, I woefully fall short of that quite often. But uh, even... Any small amount, or should I still be aspiring to that 150-minute goal? Well, that's an excellent point, because I think we have been making this recommendation all wrong. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because uh, it, is, it is true that 150 minutes a week is going to be great. But by recommending to do at least 150 minutes, we are setting people for failure, many people for failure, because it's very difficult to make a person who is doing just a few minutes a week to go 150. And right. therefore, because nobody wants to be a loser, we, we would rather <laughs> just not do anything than than failing to this 150-minute goal. Get out of my head. That's exactly the point. Exactly. Right. So, I, And I think the, the main uh, measures of those studies and, and what we try to uh, tell patients is, you know, if, if you are not doing anything, just move a little bit. You know, set a... A, a modest goal because that by itself is going to be better than nothing. Now, once you do that, you know, move to the next level. Right. Um, and people might be, uh, might reach their limit with 120 minutes. Well, that's okay. That's actually pretty good and much better than nothing. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's funny. I bought my father one of those devices over Christmas, and when he hits 10,000 steps, it, it starts hitting goal, and he's very happy. But if he doesn't hit 10,000, he's depressed. So clearly the, the, the point taken is do something as opposed to hitting a number. Yeah. Let's talk about sitting, what we're all doing right now. And uh, a lot of people who work at a desk are sitting for eight or nine hours a day. What does that do to our bodies? Well, sitting too long um, is it has shown to be very bad. And, and those studies actually also prove that because they tested uh, time when the person was doing nothing. And the assumption is that when, when, when there is no motion, it's usually because you are sitting. Sitting puts the body in a total rest. And it seems like our muscles are not meant to be like that for, for long uh, periods of time. And, and therefore, some activity, even, even minor activity, through the hour, which means that, you know, to stand up for a few minutes and then go back to your seat 
uh, actually Im- improves the the metabolism of sugar, mm. and and is is something that is actually very impressive because we will think that you you need to be exercising for for ten minutes or just run or go upstairs three four times to get the benefit. But again, very mild activities, uh, breaking your sitting time, uh, actually are it's very good. So I've seen more of my partners now having the desks where you stand as opposed to sitting. So clearly you would support that. Yeah. Standing actually burns more calories than sitting. Uh, not a lot, but few that if you uh, add them up at the end of the year, you might be talking about, you know, a couple of, you know, four or five pounds. Well, uh, that's one thing. Then the second thing is uh, when you are standing, uh, you are naturally more mobile. Mm-hmm. It is a more uh, natural reaction to just go there. Even the trash, I will be throwing the trash because is this a uh, sense of relaxation that you are mm-hmm. just not moving? Well, there you heard it, uh, Tracy. We should be standing up and doing these uh, interviews. Well, I'm thinking that I did get up and walk across the studio, but I went to get a cookie that you had brought in, so I'm negating my effects there. So tell us about the research that is being done when it comes to exercise and activity. There is a lot of uh, research going on, and uh, there are several questions, for example, that we still don't have a good answer for. Uh, for example, what what is the limit at which it is just too much exercise? Mm-hmm. And this is very important because these days, in response to the recommendation to exercise, it is becoming uh, more and more popular to start training for the marathon and the triathlon. And, and the question is, is, is there a point when, where there is just too much exercise? And some research actually suggests that. And that's uh, important because uh, we might be able to be over-exercising. But, but it's important to make it clear that that's not a problem we face with, with most of the people. Is that your problem? No, that's good. No. I've got medical advice not to do that now. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. We've been talking about the benefits of activity, even light activity, with Mayo Clinic Division Chair of Preventative Cardiology, Dr. Francisco Lopez Jimenez. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Lopez Jimenez. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss the rise in STD cases with an expert from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. The number of sexually transmitted diseases continues to increase. In fact, they surged to a record high in the United States last year. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, there are an estimated 20 million new sexually transmitted infections in the United States each year. Rates of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, which are the three most common STDs, have grown in the past two years. While most of these infections are easily treatable with antibiotics, a lot of cases continue to go undiagnosed, which can cause long-term problems, including infertility. Joining us on the phone to discuss the rise in sexually transmitted diseases is Dr. Gail Bolin. Dr. Bolin is the director of the Division of STD Prevention at the CDC in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to the program, Dr. Bolin. It's nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. First, let's talk about the rise in STD cases. Do we have any idea why that's happening? Well, certainly the CDC's STD surveillance provides us with a snapshot of what's happening with chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis in the United States. However, it does not tell us why certain trends are occurring. These are complex diseases, as you've mentioned, and they are likely impacted by a number of factors. Certainly, we know that socioeconomic factors can affect someone's ability to get tested and treated in a timely manner, which is one of our our most important strategies for preventing STDs in the United States. 
We also know recently advances in HIV treatment and prevention may actually impact STD risk behaviors. In recent years, there's more than half of state and local STD programs have experienced budget cuts, uh, resulting in a smaller disease investigation workforce, reduced STD clinic hours, and increased patient co-pays. And then lastly, for a disease like syphilis, it's important to remember that syphilis has been out of the spotlight for decades. I actually remember when I was in medical school quite a number of years back, I was told it was a disease of the past and I probably would never see a case in my career. And I seem to be spending a lot of time with my career right now working on uh, preventing syphilis cases. So we know there's a lot of factors. If it's not on the provider's radar, um, we, we also know many providers have not received um, uh, sufficient uh, recent training in STDs. Um, so there's a lot of work that we need to do to really address these rising increases in the United States. What happens if the STDs are untreated? Yeah, we certainly are concerned about the significant health consequences of untreated STDs. These can be incredibly harsh, especially for young women and their babies. Um, as you mentioned, the consequences of chlamydia and gonorrhea in young women can include not only infertility, which is the long-term lasting health consequence, but they also can suffer from ectopic pregnancies that can re- result actually in, in mortality and some fairly significant chronic pelvic pain. Um, so we certainly have concerns about health consequences in, in women. We also know um, that untreated syphilis uh, can spread to the brain, the nervous system, the eye in adults, so it has significant health consequences if not treated um, in a timely fashion. And then we also know the pregnant woman can transmit this infection to her fetus and to um, uh, her baby, which is known as congenital syphilis. And congenital syphilis um, actually is a significant cause of stillbirth babies uh, globally, Um, and we are uh, seeing some of those increases in the United States now. Um, These babies, if they are born alive, Um, can have lasting consequences that can include developmental delays and other neurologic complications that really can have significant uh, consequences. And then lastly, we know that, that, you know, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis also can facilitate HIV transmission. Um, So the more STDs we have, we're concerned about a possibility of facilitation of HIV transmission. So Dr. Boland, we we talked about prevention. If you do uh, catch these diseases, you know, we mentioned chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. Can these be adequately treated and hence that you're not at risk of developing any of these symptoms down the road? Uh, Yes, these are all treatable conditions, and that's why, as I said, one of our our main strategies for reducing STDs in the United States is ensuring people have access to timely diagnosis and adequate treatment uh, as quickly as possible to reduce these complications. We are concerned about our ability to treat uh, gonorrhea. Uh, we've seen the emergence of drug-resistant strains circulating in the United States and some significant resistance globally, fortunately not yet in the United States. And we are down to the last uh, class of antibiotics in the pipeline to treat gonorrhea, the cephalosporins. This organism over the years we know is a very smart organism and mutates once we uh, start treating with a certain antibiotic. And we've seen over time that many of the antibiotics we've used in the past to treat gonorrhea, like the penicillin, cephalosporins, tetracyclines, fluoroquinolones, we now all have problems with resistance. So we're very concerned about having very few drugs in the pipeline uh, to treat this, this organism if we end up having the threat of untreatable gonorrhea and no 
and strains resistant to the cephalosporins. Is there any danger or do you see on the horizon chlamydia or syphilis um, developing so we, antibiotic we've resistance? Been very luck, we've been very lucky with chlamydia and with uh, syphilis. Syphilis, we've been using penicillin since the 1940s to treat syphilis adequately and have seen no evidence of emerging uh, resistance. It is a very ancient bacteria and there's probably some biological reasons why it is not mutated. And as well for chlamydia, we've seen no a resistance developing to uh, chlamydia in the United States for the drugs that we use, which are azithromycin or uh, doxycycline in some circumstances. And moving forward, what are the, what are the role of vaccinations now for HPV? Uh, young girls are being vaccinated and even boys. So what, what, what's the role of vaccinations moving forward? Well, certainly vaccines obviously are an incredibly important uh, you know, public health intervention. As you know, we've been able to actually eliminate diseases worldwide through vaccination programs, but obviously you've got to have effective vaccines available to you um, to use them. So we are um, really sounding the alarm about the rises in STDs. Uh, certainly we've uh, been working with NIH um, and really we've put a call to action out about syphilis. And in our call to action, one of the, one of the pillars is to improve our biotechnologic advances for syphilis, if you if you don't realize, we're pretty much using serologic tests that were uh, developed in 1906. Penicillin was developed in 1940, and we have no vaccine uh, for syphilis. So we really are uh, looking towards uh, vaccination for chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, and looking forward to investment in those areas. And finally, the steps to prevent STDs. Obviously, you know, turning back the rise of these STDs will, we believe, will require commitment from all sectors of society. Um, we clearly need our state and local health departments to be refocusing efforts on their STD investigation, um, their clinical service infrastructure, so that patients have access to this timely detection and treatment, um, especially for people living in areas hardest hit by the STD epidemics. We also want to make sure providers have the knowledge uh, and the skills to make sure that STD screening and timely treatment is a standard part of medical care, especially for pregnant women and for men who have sex with men. We would like to see health system changes so that STD screening and treatment needs to be seamlessly integrated into prenatal care and HIV prevention and care services. And then lastly, we think it's really important for communities and individuals, and we're talking about sexually active individuals, we're talking about parents to talk to their children, that people can openly talk about these infections and that people know that they should be tested regularly and reduced risk by using condoms or practicing mutual monogamy if sexually active. That's great information. We've been talking about the rise in sexually transmitted disease with Dr. Gail Bolin, Director of the Division of STD Prevention at the CDC. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us, Dr. Bolin. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Sanj Kaka. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.